Uh, if you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we're going to read 10 through 20, but we're going to study verses 10 through 13. Uh, we want to get you, we're going to read that broader passage because we want to get you to have a feel for what we'll be studying over the next few weeks. When we were working through the book of Daniel, um, and in knowing that we're going to start the book of Revelation in January, did you guys know that? We're going to start the book of, of Revelation in January. And recognizing the intensive themes of spiritual warfare that are involved in both books, uh, the elders and I thought that it would really serve our church family if we spent a few weeks between, between the study of those books, focusing on what the scriptures teach about spiritual warfare and the weapons that God has provided his people to stand firm in the face of the battle. Our series is entitled Holy Armor. Standing Firm Against Satan's Schemes. And I hope this series title resonates with you as you join me in reading our text this morning, Roman, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, Heavenly Father, that last few sentences really is a great prayer to pray this morning. Lord, would you give me grace to open my mouth as to how and what I should say in staying true to, your, to the scriptures for your glory and the edification of these precious people. And Lord, would you give grace to every listener uh, to hide this word in their hearts, Lord, and to experience joy that would become strength for them to serve in mission for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm thankful that we don't have to look very far in our Sovereign Grace family of churches to find true heroes. Some of them just stood up here this morning. Three of those heroes uh, can also be found at our newly adopted Christ Church in Conroe, Texas, pastored by Bart Lipscomb. And if you were here just a couple of weeks ago, you heard Bart uh, preach. He was with us a couple of weeks ago, and he's actually the one that clued me in to the story I'm about to unfold to you. For several decades, Christ Church was blessed to have three elders who served alongside Dan Shield, the senior pastor, 
to faithfully and sacrificially and heroically lay down a gospel foundation that could be built on by, by lead future leaders like Bart. One of those men is Bob Windrock, uh, who is not only a hero in regard to spiritual battles that every church leader must fight, and we would covet your prayers in that regard, fighting against sin and Satan. But he was also a decorated war hero as an Air Force fighter pilot during the Vietnam War. Bob was awarded with the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal five times. Let me tell you about that. According to the Distinguished Flying Cross Society website, this medal is awarded to any officer or enlisted person of the armed forces of the United States for heroism or extraordinary achievement, extraordinary extraordinary achievement while participating in aerial flight. The Distinguished Flying Cross is the fourth highest award for heroism and the highest award for extraordinary aerial achievement. Bob told me that he flew 289 combat missions in an F-100 aircraft in South Vietnam on his first tour, and he received three Distinguished Flying Cross medals during that time. In his second tour, he flew 75 missions in North Vietnam in the F-111 aircraft and received the two medals that I'm about to unpack for you a little bit more about this morning. The Distinguished Flying Cross Society website describes those two battles like this. Captain Wendrock flew the F-111 aircraft near Nien, North Vietnam on the night of October 15, 1972. In spite of intense and accurate anti-aircraft artillery fire and adverse weather conditions, Captain Wendrock delivered his ordnance and inflicted heavy damage on the target. He displayed superior skill in maneuvering his aircraft for precision ordnance delivery and successful evasion of the intense ground fire. In addition, Bob received a second Distinguished Flying Cross later that year for flying a single ship, nighttime, low-level strike against the heavily defended Kep airfield. Despite marginal weather conditions, extremely heavy anti-aircraft fire, and the threat of hostile aircraft attacks, Captain Wendrock skillfully flew through hazardous mountain terrain to strike Kep airfield and crater the runway. His courageous and, ex- and aggressive attack severely hindered North Vietnam's uh, defense ability to follow on B-52 strikes. Bob went into these battles very much aware and very much prepared to know that when someone is flying into the heart of enemy territory, they will feel every second of the enemy's opposition. But today, Bob also told me that there's an increasing separation of the soldier from the immediate danger of the battlefield, for which we can be grateful. But that raised questions about who should be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. You see, there was a heated debate about whether to award the Distinguished Flying Cross today to men and women who pilot drone strikes in a place like Afghanistan from the safety of their offices in the United States while they sip on coffee and are able to go home to their wives and watch their kids' Little League games or uh, school activities every evening. 
I think we'd all agree that an award should be created for distinguished service for those who pilot drones in the safety of their offices as compared to those who are awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for heroism in a combat situation in which the fiery missiles of the enemy are passing only a few feet from your cockpit. Why? <laughs> this is what Bob said. Because getting shot at changes everything. I thought that was such a great line. It seems that it's not only our definitions of what constitute military warfare that have changed over time. I think our ideas of spiritual warfare have experienced similar trends, especially if we try to understand spiritual warfare outside of the context of God's word. I mean, let's be honest. Wouldn't you prefer a drone-like kind of spiritual warfare? Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you prefer a type of warfare you only occasionally and not regularly have to engage in? Wouldn't you like to fight an enemy that doesn't really get too close and to you? And if he does, you can simply rev up your devil-defeating drone and shoot off a passionate, I rebuke you, Satan! Don't you, don't you wish it was just, just as easy as that? Imagine the damage we could do against the spirits looming over a country or a city. Imagine the victories that we could have piloting our devil-defeating drones and aiming our rebukes at the spirits of addiction and pornography and racism and more. But alack and alas, when we study God's word, that is not how the battle is described. And that is not how the battle is won. Spiritual warfare could better be described as conflicts that are in your face in their intensity and not easy to escape. These attacks try to direct you how to think, what to believe, how you view God, how you see yourself, how you see others how you will respond to temptation and sin and failure. They are more like the hand-to-hand conflicts described by so many of the memorials and monuments on the battlefield of Gettysburg. If you've ever been there, it's it's a gripping place to go. Monuments about how the battle was won because the soldiers stood firm in their resistance of the enemy that was immediately in front of them, trying to pierce them through with their bayonets because they were running out of ammunition. The battle was so intense. That's the kind of battle, precious church, that Ephesians 6 is preparing us for because that's the kind of battle we're actually in. Getting shot at changes everything. Ephesians 6 will remind us how frequently we're being shot at every day and how Satan's schemes can infiltrate and attack every part of our lives. But there's good news. We need not fear the battle because in the gospel, God has given us all we need to stand firm in a spiritual war. And you could say, Amen. That's our main point this morning. In the gospel, God has given us all we need to stand firm in a spiritual war. So the first point this morning is we need to understand how often we must stand firm in a spiritual war. 
I'm currently reading a book called Against the Darkness, The Doctrine of Angels, Satan, and Demons by Graham Cole. It was recommended to us by Mark Prater, the executive director of Sovereign Grace Churches. In his recommendation, Mark actually, uh, Josh, he actually recommended this book because of a quote by J.C. Ryle, which you, who you quoted today. I thought that was pretty neat. Mark highlighted some thoughts that Cole recorded about J.C. Ryle in an essay he wrote called Evangelical Religion. In it, he discusses how the gospel can be spoiled in various ways through, through our errors. And one of the ways he described it being spoiled is through disproportion or disproportionality. I want you to think about that. By this, he means attaching an exaggerated importance to secondary things of Christianity and a diminished importance on primary things. I want you to think about times when, when you've experienced great error in somebody's preaching or maybe in your own belief system and how often that error is related to disproportionality. It's not taking the scripture in the proportions that the scripture prescribes. Does that make sense? You think about cults and, and, and erroneous doctrine that ultimately can lead to heresy. And, and, and it just is reflective so many times of being disproportional. Cole goes on to say that Ryle's concern for a gospel spoiled by disproportion is especially relevant to the devil and to spiritual warfare. As such, the Bible gives much more time and attention to spiritual warfare, to the tactics of the devil, and how to stand firm against him than I think we usually do. And we want to do better as your pastors to do everything in our power to stay true to the inspired, divine, inerrant, sufficient word of God so that you can stand firm at 3 a.m. when it seems like the voices of condemnation and accusation are shouting much louder than any other voice that you can hear at that time. Isn't that what happens so often at 3 a.m.? Oh, so we want, so guys, we, that's why we're doing this series. We so want to serve you well as your pastors. So when Paul introduces verse 10 with the word finally, so let's, let's think about what he's doing there. He's not merely, he's not doing like what maybe sometimes you do when my sermons are far too long, which is about 99% of the time. And, you're, and when I say finally, your stomach, you're, you start salivating because you can taste roses, you know, and it's just exciting. But that's not how Paul is using finally here. He's not merely preparing to bring the letter to a close. Paul is preparing to help us understand the proper regard and the proportion of our attention that should be given to spiritual warfare and how it affects everything else. And let's keep unpacking that. What Paul is about to teach us is that we're in a war zone each and every day of our lives. And our enemy, the devil, is committed to attacking the most significant parts of our lives. This is a continuous section of teaching. So that's why we, listen guys, it's so important. Expository preaching and teaching. And I believe your reading through your Bibles, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, is so important. Because then you would realize that when he's speaking of finally, he's going back 
further back into the letter to places like Ephesians 5.22 and, and he's covering all the territory that brings us up to Ephesians 6.10-20. through 20. It tells us how the gospel informs and empowers and is to be applied in marriage. Do you remember that? It tells us how the gospel informs and empowers our parenting. Do you remember that? And it tells us how the gospel informs and empowers our understanding of relationships between leaders and those who serve them. And in so doing, it establishes also the challenges. Because, right, marriage is great. And isn't it a challenge? Parenting is great. And isn't it a challenge? And leadership and serving leaders, it's great. But isn't it a challenge? Establishes those challenges and the blessing. So here's what, it, guys, it would be just very easy to look at these three areas of life and reduce them to mere facets of living in the natural world, just pretty much like our unbelieving neighbor might. As such, each will have natural problems that should have natural solutions. Isn't that the way we do a lot of things? Oh, well, here's a natural problem. There must be a natural solution for it. The problem with this is that when we've exhausted all of the natural solutions we can come up with, we usually end up quitting. We just quit those relationships in pursuit of other natural relationships that end up having natural problems that can't be solved ultimately with natural answers. I want you to even think of politics, you guys. Politics that does not consider the schemes of the enemy. Politics where we, we end up having Christian nationalism, right? Why? Listen, and just so you know, I have to, I just always feel like I have to qualify this. Vote. <laughs> Run for office. Be a, be, invade, be a William Wilberforce or an Abraham Kuyper. Go for it. But let's don't assume that just being a good conservative is going to change the world. There are other forces at play. And don't we see that in our history? You get administration after administration. One you like and you think, oh, this is going to save our nation. And oh, well, that was a disappointment. And the other guys, oh, well, we got our guy in the administration. And this is going to save our nation. Well, that was a disappointment. We can't just look at the world as natural issues, natural that should have natural problem, uh, solutions, right? So in verse 10, when Paul says, finally, he's seeking to ensure that we don't interpret things like marriage and parenting and our vocations merely through natural lenses, but also through supernatural lenses. He's about to teach us that even though our own personal sin and the sins of others is foundational to all our battles, so we're not going to pull the blame the devil card here, Right? If you're old like me, there was this comedian named Flip Wilson. Some of you guys know where I'm going. You know what Flip Wilson used to do? He did this character called Geraldine. And Geraldine would say, The devil made me do it, honey! That's a terrible Flip Wilson imitation, but that's what he would say. We're not going there. We understand the foundational problem of our own sin and, and how the sins of others can shape, not make us sin, but can shape how we sin. Um, we, but we do want to also recognize that we don't only wrestle with flesh and blood. 
but with the devil and his schemes. And this battle infiltrates and complicates all of the other challenges that he has outlined, not on an occasional basis, but a regular basis. We know that from the beginning, don't we? And how Satan attacked the very first marriage? Are we surprised that he would continue the same lies in every Christian marriage that exists now? Are we surprised that he would so, so um, de- defile the family with sin that the, the, the first two brothers would, would, would have there be murder and, and the family harmony would be destroyed in the very first family? And how he fanned the flames of pride and jealousy in promoting that murder. You know, perhaps more than any other aspect of Scripture, ignorance of this battle with the devil and how regularly the schemes of the devil call out to the sins of our flesh and affect our thinking and choices, affect our interpersonal relationships, is, I think, one of the truths in which we've experienced disproportionality in reading our word and in teaching our word, and in preaching our word. When you consider the normal Christian life, do you regularly factor in the ongoing presence of spiritual warfare? I'm going to borrow a couple of quotes here. The, the, at the pastor's conference, uh, C.J. Mahaney preached an amazing sermon that I want to recommend to you on spiritual warfare, which is comforting, in the sense that, thank you, Lord, it's just confirming that we're going in the right direction, just another confirmation. But it was also kind of deflating because CJ's an amazing preacher. And I thought, why don't we just put on CJ's video this morning? That, you know, but, but then Joshua Taylor, Joshua said, Joshua said, but CJ's not our pastor. I'll give you $5 after service, Josh. Um, so this is, this is what, how Christopher Ashe describes the normal Christian life. This is in your notes. So follow along and see if this is how you define the normal Christian life. We ought to expect this. Every morning we ought to wake up and say to ourselves, there is a vicious, dark, spiritual battle being warged over me today. Satan is very busy. Wherever on earth there is a believer walking with God in loving fear, God says, look, there's a believer. And Satan says, may I attack him or her? I want to prove whether this is a real believer. And sometimes, this is, this is Christopher Ashe's commentary on the book of Job, which is another great recommendation to you. And sometimes the Lord grants that terrible permission. And when he does... We ought not to be surprised as though something strange were happening to us. That's from 1 Peter 4.12. So here is one inescapable element of the normal Christian life. Warfare. Is that how you woke up this morning? I studied this. And I don't know if I woke up that way this morning. This, is, this one is just really sweet. So Tolkien described, this is in your notes too, described the frequency of spiritual battle in the terminology of a next-door neighbor when he said, it does not do to leave a live dragon 
out of your calculations if you live near him. Isn't that great? I just thought that is so right. Guys, in my early years as a Christian, I had a few significant experiences of dealing with with people who showed indications of demonic possession. We see it in Nepal. We see it. There's just that is a factor. But I developed a wrong understanding that spiritual warfare was just an occasional kind of struggle against very Hollywood-like manifestations of evil. But Scripture describes it as living in a war zone, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It expresses itself in the man who has allowed himself to look at soft porn, thinking he could stop at any time. But now he finds himself experiencing what feels like an irresistible temptation for full-blown sexual immorality that seems mysteriously stronger than his mere desire for sex. It's the mom who's spiraling down into discouragement and depression and weariness and isolating herself from other moms. Increasingly, she's hearing this voice inside of her shouting out accusations and condemnations about what she believes are her parenting failures. Failures of impatience or anger and raised voices. She finds it almost supernaturally hard not to compare herself to other moms who seem to not work as hard at their parenting, yet have very few struggles and have have better behaving kids, it seems. It's the man or woman who can't believe they allowed themselves to be deceived into thinking that the investment that they made would result in a payoff that they would never again have to worry about money or made a purchase that they thought would make them happy and carefree, but now find themselves almost bankrupt. It's the pastor who never thought he would ever compromise God's word because of his pride, but because of his pride became so envious of how other churches were growing that he began to preach a gospel that tickled people's ears, yet shriveled their hearts and his It's the married couple who only a few short years ago thought their love would last for a lifetime. And now, even though they have no biblical reasons for doing so, they think they have every reason to pursue a divorce. It's the teenager who who just is just beset with the thought that my parents are foolish. I know better than they. They don't know what I'm going through. And disobeying them is the pathway to freedom. You see, spiritual, you see what I'm saying about in your face, spiritual warfare. Satan's not making any of those sins, but he sure is trying to incite a sinful response in us, isn't he? So let's keep digging into this. Given how regularly the devil's schemes are going to infiltrate our daily lives, it becomes obvious that we will need a strength from outside ourselves to stand firm against him. And great news, that strength has been given to us. Isn't that great news? So the second point is we need a strength beyond ourselves to stand firm in a spiritual, spiritual war. And this is why Paul says in verse 10b that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul is telling us this not only to remind us that we are no match for the devil's power and schemes. He's also telling this to remind us that final victory over the devil does not depend upon us. So can I have your eyes? Final victory over the devil does not depend upon us. 
That's another one where we could say, amen. Like on a sigh of relief, right? Because we don't want you to go to where, okay, if I just, so, so victory over the devil is about me standing for, no, <laughs> no. Victory over the devil is because Christ stood firm and didn't come down from the cross. That's what assured our victory over Satan. God had promised us that the head of the serpent would be crushed. And when Christ was crucified, buried, and raised again on the third day, it sealed the devil's doom. The devil is a defeated devil. Christ has already won the victory. The gates of hell shall not prevail against God's people. And yet, the devil rages on in his hatred against God and against God's people. Even though final victory has already been established, the devil is still going to try to do as much damage as he can to keep people from coming to Christ, attacking Christians and trying to prevent them from living fruitful Christian lives, attacking marriage and, and trying to, to distort and, and throw mud on what is to be one of the preeminent displays of the gospel on earth. He's working hard, isn't he? And he's trying to convince everyone that there's more joy to be found outside of Jesus than in him. The issue then is not that you must win the victory, but that you stand firm in the victory that Christ has already given you. Now, doesn't that make a difference? Doesn't that make a difference? That Jesus has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And wouldn't that, wouldn't that just be something that Jesus is, is having paid the price. He paid the price of sin. He's defeated all of the tactics and schemes of the devil. He's crushed the serpent's head when his heel was bruised. It, wouldn't it make a difference for you in knowing that, okay, so he's still going to be ticked off at you. He's still going to hate you. Until I come again, he's still going to try to get in your face and deceive you into thinking there's a better way than Jesus. And wouldn't that be something where Jesus says, so here's, here's what I want you to do. See where I'm standing. Come here. Come here, child. Come here. Stand here. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, you stand with me. You stand in me. You, this is, it's standing firm that he's calling us to. It's resisting that he's calling us to. It's not running away that he's calling us to. Did you notice? You will never see in the scriptures a scripture that says, flee from Satan. It never, it, there's flee from sin, right? And you're going to hear as our other elders teach on the rest of the armor of God in the coming weeks. You're going to hear that, that there's no backside described. To the armor of God, right? Why? Because we have everything we need as we stand to resist him in the full armor of God that he's given us. We're called firm to stand firm and resist the devil's lies by placing our faith in the authority of God's word, in the sufficiency of Christ and his cross to forgive our sins and satisfy our souls, in reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and in our devotion to bring the good news of the gospel to every people group on earth. That's how we stand firm. 
As we will see in the weeks ahead, one of the ways that God has empowered us to stand firm against Satan's schemes is highlighted in verse 11 when he says to put on the whole armor of God. He could have been using, I guess, the example that a lot of the commentators say he's probably using the example of a fully armed Roman soldier. Certainly Paul was familiar with fully armed Roman soldiers with his imprisonments. And certainly the people were familiar with them. But, y'all, have you ever been in a church where this wonderful admonition to put on spiritual armor, to apply spiritual armor, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll explain that more in a minute, was just reduced to this. So take the helmet of salvation. I've, really, I've heard this come from a pulpit. This wasn't to children's church. This was to adults. So every morning, get up and literally put on your helmet of salvation. I may as well talk like that. Take up your shield of faith. Get the sword of the Spirit. Did you ever notice that that doesn't work? <laughs> Did you ever notice? And that's not what this text is talking about. He's not saying put on your imaginary helmet, carry imaginary shield, wield an imaginary sword. What Paul is doing is wanting us to understand that the armor of God is gospel-drenched armor. So parents, listen, and, and it doesn't mean you can't illustrate some things with helmets and shields and all those things, but if you're going to talk to children about the helmet of salvation, then we should talk about atonement. We should talk about propitiation. We should talk about the blood that was shed for our sins. We should talk about the cross. We should talk about adoption. Those are the truths that are going to help your children stand firm against the devil, amen? It's gospel-drenched armor. And, and you'll find that as our brothers teach on these things. He's wanting us to regularly call to mind and apply the word of God, the work of Christ on the cross, the resurrected presence of Jesus, and the mission, the ongoing mission of Christ. Those qualities permeate the holy armor of God. A growing knowledge, love, and application of, what the, of the gospel is what we need to stand firm against what Paul will now call the devil's schemes. So let's dig into that, okay? Third point this morning is we need to understand both our sinful tendencies and the devil's strategies. When Paul speaks of the devil's schemes in verse 11b, <laughs> he's not saying that that devil's a really creative guy. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we've got to outwit this devil. We've got to outmaneuver this devil. That's not what he's saying. The word schemes can also be translated as strategies. What are the devil's chief strategies? One of his chief strategies is to use our own sinful tendencies against us. That's one of his strategies. So it's amazing that, that we're not going to be obsessed with the devil, right? We are going to be very alert to the condition of our hearts. Because isn't it amazing that as our hearts are growing in Christ-like maturity, 
hiding the word in our hearts, being satisfied in Jesus alone. Isn't it amazing how much stronger you feel to resist the devil's schemes? The devil doesn't make us do anything. The devil attacks the areas of our life in which we have a proven track record of sinfulness and not living lives centered on the gospel. So it's really kind of cool that we had, thank you, Lord, that we had a little mini-series on being centered on the gospel because being centered on the gospel is, is definitively important in spiritual warfare. So I'm going to take a risk here. I should have called our piano players about this because I'm taking what I read <laughs> about this. So piano players, get ready to either boo me or, yeah, that's right. Apparently that if we sang a note over those piano strings, if I got in there and, and, I, and I went, ah, <laughs> um, whatever note my ah uh, was, that note would resonate that piano string. True? Alan, true? Oh, hallelujah. Oh, I should have done that. I should have done that way before this. I'm so sorry. But that's such a relief. <laughs> but you see what the illustration is getting at. There's a lot of other piano strings in there, but there's, there's one that is predisposed to the voice. And isn't that so often what our battles with Satan really is like? There's already some stuff going on in our hearts, whether it's patterns of disobedience, whether it's unforgiveness, bitterness, laziness, gluttony. I mean, there's so many, right? There's so many things. Loving other things more than God, not loving our neighbor as ourself. It's just, there's so many things. That Satan knows there's already some areas that you're predisposed to the temptation. And, and isn't it great to know that as God helps our hearts and as we hide the word in our hearts, and y'all, we need to help each other with spiritual warfare. Yeah, again, yeah, the guys are going to get into this, but you're going to discover that in one of the armaments of the holy armor, it really can best be described as armor that is fit into the armor of others. You need other people. Isolation. Please hear, please hear a pastor's heart here. I'm not trying to just pound on you. But isolation makes the devil jump up and down with excitement. Because you've already been predisposed. You're already predisposed to discouragement. You're already predisposed to doubting God's love. You're already predisposed to viewing people in the church in the wrong ways. And if he can just get you to quit attending, don't gather with the believers. Oh my goodness, the havoc he can wreak. That's why the Bible says, uses phrases like, don't give the devil a foothold by allowing the sun to go down on your anger. You know that passage. Nor don't, don't install a new believer as an elder because he's going to be prone to being puffed up with conceit. We don't need proud elders. We need humble elders because the proud elders are going to fall into the condemnation of the devil. Thomas Brooks wrote this amazing book. I, I recommend it to you highly called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Listen to how he puts this. This is in your notes. Satan loves to sail with the wind. He knows your virtues and he knows your vices. 
If he can turn your virtues against you and into vices, he will. If he can take your vices and turn them into your ruin, he will. So what are the devil's strategies? We can outline them. There's three. You can just write these down. I didn't put them in the notes. But the, they're, they're obvious. You probably know these. The first one is deception. That's his strategy. Chief strategy, isn't it? The devil is a liar. He wants you to believe his lie. This, this goes right back to Genesis, doesn't it? That you can decide what is right and wrong and good and evil by yourself. It affects every argument between a husband and wife. It affects every conflict between a parent and child. It affects every situation in your workplaces and in your school and in the church. Those lies affect us. We can decide what's right and wrong and who is right and wrong, by the way, in this argument we're having. You don't need to look to God for that. So in this way, so remember how he, he prowls about like a roaring lion. What's the rest of it? Seeking whom he may devour. What is he really wanting to devour? Is he just wanting my kidney and <laughs> my right lung? I mean, is that what he's wanting to devour? No. In this way, he's seeking to devour your faith. Faith in what? The authority of God's word. That's what he's wanting to get you. And if he gets you there, it's, a, it's kind of a downhill thing, isn't it? When you start questioning the authority of God's word, he's devouring your faith in the inerrancy, sufficiency, authority, and divine inspiration of Scripture. So deception is huge. What about temptation? Here's the second one, temptation. He wants you to believe the lie that you can find satisfaction and meaning in, in life on your own. You don't need God to be happy. You don't need God to be satisfied while we just walk down the slow road toward addictions and entertaining ourselves to death and going from one failed relationship to the other. But oh, no, I, I, I can find happiness without God. He wants you to believe the lie that disobedience to God won't have any consequences. Those are twofold, isn't it? Oh, you can be happy without God. And if you'll disobey him, that's when you're really going to really find your life. You're gonna, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find your best life now by disobeying God. In this way, he seeks to devour your faith again. In what? The loving kindness of God. I know all of us have been, have, have been on this hook. That we started doubting whether God was good because I didn't get healed. We started doubting whether God was good because the, I, 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 I just, I, I'm not finding a job. And the ones I'm, uh, that, that are, are looking to me, I'm so overqualified for. Are you really good, God? You say, here we go. He's devouring your trust in the kindness of God. And... He's devouring your fear of the righteousness of God. Because you can sin without consequence. Go ahead. Have another drink. Go ahead. You see how, you see how he works? These are the devil's schemes. 
one of the ways you can tell he's at work in, in, that, in that area of temptation. First of all, can I just say to the guys, men, I have heard far too often from men who ended up committing adultery or who, who, who tried to hide their secret addiction to pornography. I've heard so many times men who they're working ungodly hours and they don't feel like the wife or no one appreciates it. And, and they start getting this idea of what? I deserve this. I'm suffering and I'm sacrificing. I deserve this. So you, start, you see how this goes, you guys. It's already a problem in their heart that Satan loves to fan into flame because God's not as good as he says he is. And you deserve to be happy. All these strategies. And you know something we all do? Grumbling and complaining. It is such an insult to the most high, perfectly wise, perfectly loving God. You may be grumbling about your spouse, but you know where that ultimately is going? It's the spouse you gave me. It's the, it's the poor income you've given me. It's the, the lack of healing that you've allowed me to have. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says here. This is in your notes. Satan cannot ultimately destroy a Christian believer, but he is well able to destroy our assurance and our joy, our pleasure in the gospel. So we need to find in the grace of God a defense against those fiery darts of the evil one. The most sinister thoughts Satan insinuates into our minds are not enticements to sin, but suspicions about God himself. Man, that is a powerful sentence. He seeks to distort our view of God and our understanding of his gracious character. Satan's plan is to blind us to God's grace and diminish our trust in him, crushing our love for him and destroying all the pleasures of his grace. That comes all in that category of temptation. And here's one that I know I'm very familiar with and I can be so prone to falling prey to. It's, it's accusation and condemnation. So we have deception we have temptation and then accusation and condemnation. After you've disobeyed God, he wants you to believe the lie. There's no forgiveness for you. And there's no hope of your ever changing. Listen, I'll just speak on my own behalf. I, there, are, there are sin habits that have lasted far longer than I would have ever hoped them to last. I'm still asking God to help me with them. I'm still trying to walk with brothers and accountability with Jan preeminently about these things, but they seem slow to change and slow to die. And isn't that one of the, one of the ways he attacks you? You're never going to be free from that sin habit. This accusation and condemnation, no forgiveness, no transformation. And in that way, he seeks to devour your faith in the sufficiency and finality of Christ's death on the cross as the once and for all payment for all of our sins. And in the Spirit's power to progressively transform us into the likeness of Christ because the work he began, he will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Thomas Brooks comes to our rescue again here. Look, look at this. This is just so good. 
The remedy against this, speaking of accusation and condemnation, is to look upon all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You know the wife who said to the bill collector, If I owe you anything, go see my husband. So may the believer say to the devil, If I owe you anything, go to my Christ, who is underwritten for me fully. I must not sit down discouraged under the fear of those debts, debts with which Christ to the uttermost farthing has fully satisfied. The remedy against this accusation is to solemnly consider that believers must repent for being discouraged by their sins. That one hit me like a ton of bricks. I never thought of that. I need to repent. By being discouraged by my sins. And here he explains why. Being discouraged for being discouraged by your sins springs from our refusal of the richness, freeness, fullness, and everlastingness of God's love. It springs from our refusal of the power, glory, sufficiency, and efficacy of the sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And from our refusal of the worth, glory, fullness, largeness, and completeness of the righteousness of Christ given to you by faith. God did not, this is, this is a word for several of us this morning. God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be rent and torn in pieces by discouragement. I just want to go to have a prayer meeting right now, you know. Brooks is the one who said, listen, for every, every look you take at your sin, take five looks to Christ on the cross. Oh, yeah, my sin. Oh, an accusation come to me. Wait, five looks at the cross. Finished. Done. New life. Joy forevermore. Amen. Okay, let's begin to wind this. Now, now I'm going to get to my finally, right? Are you ready? Here's my finally. So we're going to get to my finally. Before this last little point, verse 12 goes on to say that, that um, even though we have to deal with flesh and blood realities of our sins and the sins of others on a day-to-day basis, we also have to account for the strategies of the devil who can incite and fan the flames of our wrong beliefs and sinful desires. And then he goes on with that segment about just how organized Satan's evil devices are in the remainder of uh, verse 12, how prevalent they are both on earth and in heavenly realms. So here's what he's doing. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, see, this is, this is, and they, this is where people get obsessed with the devil and they try to read into the scriptures what isn't necessarily there. And you know, oh, there's all these military organizational things and the devils are all like this. What he's really saying is, Man, we've got to deal with spiritual warfare on earth, and they're, they, they're fighting even in heavenly realms. Didn't we learn that in Daniel? That there's this fight going on in heavenly realms. But here's what is most, uh, what really could, should concern us the most is not just how prevalent they are, it's that you can't see them. They're unseen. The best illustration I give to that was how I felt when, when coronavirus was first being affecting Midland. And remember back in those days, let's don't look at this through the lens of a year and a half. Go back to 
And when we knew nothing, it freaked me out. I'm going to go outside, and there's an unseen enemy. And almost like, you know, I mean, I've got to wash my, I've got to wash my bananas when I get them home. <laughs> I've got to, you know, right? I don't know if you guys did that. Man, we, our, our entryway became like this food triage place where, where we're getting and we're wearing gloves and we're, oh my goodness, because where is it? How do you fight against an enemy you can't see? Well, you know how you do it? You don't have to see him. You have to trust in the one who sees all things and knows all things and controls all things. The last part is just a reminder of how we began. In the gospel, God has given us all we need to stand firm in a spiritual war. And in that last, in that last verse, verse 13, so therefore put on the gospel-drenched whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Some, some people argue about what the evil day means. Some say it's, it's really every day between the fall and the second coming of Christ. I think there's some legitimacy to that. Others say that it's the days that you, you, boy, we should dread that this would ever happen. But days when the temptation to sin, the desire for sin, and the opportunity to sin all come together. That's a frightening thought. But isn't it great that even with that, God's given us grace to stand firm. Would you stand with me? Josh, would you come and, uh, and close us? So over the next few weeks, as I told you, you're going to be hearing from our entire elder team and staff about what it means to put on the armor of God. And, and I hope in every sermon, I hope your heart will be touched by the passion of your pastors to equip you and to help you stand firm according to the word of God and the work of Christ. That's, that's what really this boils down to. So just as a closing application as the team is getting ready, this is the last little quote in your notes. It's on the other page of your notes. I love this. Christ, the scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here or happy thereafter. It is my work as a Christian, but much more as a watchman, to do my best, this is so beautiful, to discover the fullness of Christ the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver.